This week, how scientists could use private data to carry out research. You know, this is incredibly sensitive information, and for good reasons, there are restrictions on who can access it and how. And what 15 years of fighting malaria has achieved and what the future holds. The big danger here, I think, is complacency. Plus, how to twist a traveling neutron. This is The Nature Podcast for September 24th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. Whenever you fill in a tax return, go to the doctors or get a paycheck, data are gathered about your life. These kinds of administrative data are a rich resource for a wealth of research. But there's a problem. The data are private. Although possible, getting your hands on private data is hard, with strict protocols limiting access. With public concerns rising over commercial uses, is there a way that researchers could use these kinds of data in a responsible and helpful way? I called up reporter Erica Cech-Hayden, who's written a feature on this very subject. First off, I asked what kinds of research could be done with data like these. A lot of this work has been spearheaded by an economist named Raj Chetty. He and some other economists, they wanted to look back at the results of this education study that was done way back decades ago um, when children in Tennessee were randomly assigned to different classrooms in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and third grade. And the, the idea of that experiment had just been to measure various things about how the early childhood experience can influence the child's sort of future educational attainment. And one of the things they found was that, you know, children who were assigned higher quality teachers in the younger years went on to have, you know, some benefits in education later on. But what no one had done is connected that to how the children's lives turned out as adults. Well, they all have social security numbers and different identifiers that that, uh, the researchers could use to go and look in the IRS tax database and find exactly what they had told uh, the IRS their incomes were in in their adult years. And what the study was able to do was to say that uh, the children with the higher quality teachers also had a slightly higher uh, percentage earnings as adults. So it really spoke to this power of the high quality teacher, even as young as kindergarten for children. So that sounds like one great example of the kinds of science that could be done using this data. What's what's the holdup? Why do people, are, are we not hearing loads of these studies all the time? You know, this is incredibly sensitive information. And um, I, it, it, you know, for, for good reasons, there are restrictions on who can access it and how. Um, I spoke with Julia Lane, who's an economist at New York University and has really been a pioneer of a lot of this work. She was at the U.S. Census Bureau. She said, difficulty in access is a feature, not a bug. It should be hard to get access to data, but it's very important that such access be made possible. So that's a really difficult line to walk. You know, how do you make sure that the access is made available in a responsible way because it's powerful information about every one of us. So we've got a bit of a catch-22 here. We have data which is private and necessarily should be kept private and yet we still want to use it. How, how do scientists, how are they going to go about doing this more in the future? I think this is a real work in progress. So there are a couple of ways that are being talked about and one of them is definitely... Um, 
you know, to be very transparent about what the work is and, and, you know, also distinguish it from this work that's going on with the private data brokers because you have these companies that are collecting information about, for instance, our credit card purchases or our social media posts, oftentimes without our knowledge, and I think that makes people very nervous. You know, research is not about that. Research is about sort of trying to make clear what the goal of it is, and the more transparent you can be with research, I think the more buy-in you can get from the public. So that's very key. I think there are also some technological ideas that researchers are thinking of. So one idea is called differential privacy. And all that is is sort of adding a little bit of noise to the data so that you can't go into it and find one particular individual, but you can still use it to draw sort of broad conclusions. So there are a lot of agencies that are pioneering this, like the U.S. Census. And I think that as researchers become more comfortable with these technological types of solutions, they'll become more prevalent as well. And do you think there's any possibility that people's views about what people do with their own data, is that going to shut down science in the future? Or do we think we're going to, you know, battle through? You know, ultimately, I think that one possible sort of very positive vision is that we're all going to have a little bit more control over our own data. So one idea that I heard a bit about that unfortunately I didn't really get to explore in the future is fog and edge computing. And it's basically the idea that if you have a device that can send data somewhere, you would control at the level of the device what data does get sent. So instead of some aggregated data place making decisions about what what data to include and not include in an analysis, you would make that decision never to even send the data in the first place if it's not something you're comfortable with broadcasting. So I think that there are different solutions that I think I'm pretty optimistic about. That was Erica Check Hayden. Read her feature at nature.com forward slash news. Throw a ball and you give it momentum. Tie it to some string and spin it around your head and that momentum is angular. Momentum exists in the quantum world too, but here it can get a bit more complicated. Electrons and photons travelling in corkscrew-like waves have been shown to exhibit something called orbital angular momentum, which throws a twist into the mix. Now, a team from the University of Waterloo in Canada has shown that this orbital angular momentum can be applied to neutrons as well. Lizzie Gibney called up researcher Dimitri Pushin and started by asking just what orbital angular momentum really is. The notion of orbital angular momentum is quite familiar to us in our everyday life. You can think of a bicycle wheel rotates, uh, exhibit orbital angular momentum, or you can see it in your tea cup or coffee cup when you sometimes add a sugar or milk and you... uh, um, you, you mix it with your spoon, there will be a swirl, or sometimes we call it a vortex. For the quantum world, um, we also observe orbital angular momentum, and that would be, for example, electrons in, inside the atoms. Uh, in this case, we cannot really see trajectory of electrons, so I usually think it as a cloud uh, where you can find the probability of electrons in some place, but electrons in the atoms exhibit a quantum, in this case, orbital angular momentum. And so in your study, uh, you were the, you've been the first to create neutrons that have this property, this orbital angular momentum. Um, we've known about neutrons since the 1930s or so. Why has it taken until now to be able to create neutrons that have this property? Yeah, that's a good question. But if you compare it, for example, with uh, orbital angular momentum, which was discovered for the light only recently in 1990s, 
we know about the light since I don't know uh, more than a thousand years and only in 1990s people were able to generate quantum orbital momentum for the light so in that sense uh, neutrons is quite fast in development so when we were thinking about orbital angular momentum it's good to to see the neutron as both a particle um, but also as a wave is that right yeah, uh, and what we did, we explored its wave properties. So we were able to create uh, some special phase twist applied to the neutron wave function. So we were twisting neutron wave, in a sense, to create orbital angular momentum or to control orbital momentum of the neutrons. So tell me a bit more about that, about the actual experiment. How did you go in about imparting the neutrons with this twist to their wave? So actually, idea to that experiment uh, come to us uh, while we were at the talk showing the orbital angular momentum for the electrons. So we thought, okay, so here electron is the quantum object, then it should be possible to create any other quantum object. It's a question only how would you uh, make this phase twist. For the light at the beginning, actually people used um, a spiral phase plate. It's something similar to like a staircase. So when you send this particle or quantum object through this type of spiral staircase, it will uh, create additional phase twist. So this phase twist, if it's if it meets specific condition, will be will make out of particle quantum orbital angular momentum state. And remarkably, if we can create a, a structure like this staircase and we send neutron through it, it will also create or, orbital angular momentum. And is it harder to manipulate the neutron than it is uh, to do experiments with with electrons, say, or with light? To control neutrons, yes, you need to have a special facilities to slow them down for us to be able to make them interact better with some materials because they don't have a charge they they have a unique properties to penetrate through a lot of materials neutrons are such a great probes neutron scattering is a rapidly growing field and you've you've only just uh, started with neutrons with orbital angular momentum but what's um what might some dream uses be then a little bit further down the line so whenever we measure anything yeah we usually compare it with uh, like some kind of known properties. For example, use a ruler yeah, to measure distance. What ruler has is exhibit some kind of uh, um, lines where you put your object and compare, okay, it started from this line to that line. So we know like uh, we, we perform measurements. So now let's think that the atoms are arranged in some spiral profile, yeah, like a DNA. So it would be much easier if you have some kind of ruler which looks like a spiral. This way you can measure it much precise and you can actually see in which way it spiraled, left or right. So neutron have this kind of orbital angle momentum will exhibit this kind of spiral properties. So you would kind of move it closer to the object and compare it because it will either scatter with the different properties if the, if the spirality are parallel or in the same direction or maybe not interacting as much if the spirals are in a different direction. That was Dimitri Pushin talking to reporter Lizzie Gibney. Read the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the news chat, using electrical currents to treat learning disorders. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Corey Locke. Beneath the icy crust of one of Saturn's moons lies an ocean that covers the entire globe. The finding comes from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which has been orbiting Saturn since 2004. 
the moon, Enceladus, has long captured the attention of astronomers as a good place to look for extraterrestrial life. Cassini had previously spotted jets of liquid spewing from the moon's surface, and an earlier study hinted at an ocean beneath the moon's south pole. Now astronomers say that the subterranean ocean covers the entire moon, making Enceladus an even more exciting place as we search for new life forms. The research is published in the journal Icarus. When someone injures their spinal cord, they're normally given rehabilitation therapy to improve whatever movement they have left. But combining this therapy with electrical stimulation of the spinal cord could lead to better recovery. Researchers connected wires to the legs and spinal cord of partially paralyzed rats. Whenever activity was detected in the weakened leg muscles, electrical pulses were sent to the injured part of the spinal cord. After a few weeks, the rats that got the stimulation could reach and grab food pellets with their front leg better than unzapped animals. This approach to rehab could also work in humans. You can find the research in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Malaria is both preventable and treatable, but it's still one of the world's biggest killers. Since the year 2000, there's been a huge effort to tackle the problem across Africa, where 90% of cases occur. Now, a project has tried to analyse all the data from the past 15 years. Nature's Marion Turner spoke to Daniel Weiss of the Malaria Atlas Project at the University of Oxford to find out how close we are to winning this ongoing battle. Well, malaria is an enormous problem across Africa. It affects tens of millions of people every year. In the year 2000, at the beginning of the study, it was, it was killing more than a million people in Africa every year, making it one of the largest causes of death on the continent. And then since then, our study shows that things have improved quite dramatically, but it still is you know, potentially causing 500,000 deaths a year. So it's, it's a major problem. So what does one do to try to control malaria? Well, there's three main intervention um, techniques out there or available to us, um, one of which is insecticide-treated bed nets, um, which is the most commonly used intervention um, method. Uh, another one is drugs, so in particular ACTs, or artemisinin-based combination therapies, uh, which are a new class of anti-malarial drugs, and they're sort of the, the current ones that have yet to have major resistance problems in Africa. And then the third is indoor residual spraying, and that's actually going into houses and spraying them with insecticide. Africa is an entire continent. How did you go about trying to study malaria across such a, a vast area? Well, it is a huge challenge. We have over 30,000 point surveys that go into our model, and they come from all the countries that we study and from different years. And that's how, together, when we bring all that information uh, to bear on one problem, we're able to create a model that looks at changes over both space and time across a huge area. Um, so I guess the answer is, is, is a lot of data, is how we make it happen. So what were some of your main overall findings of what's changed in terms of malaria incidents in the last 15 years? Well, our findings generally are very positive. There's been a substantial reduction in malaria uh, across almost all of sub-Saharan Africa. The parasite rate has halved since 2000, and incidence is down about 40%. So despite the fact that population is, is increasing quite dramatically, malaria is still going down quite substantially. And I think apart from those, those 
broad overall numbers. Um, one of the things that has really set your study apart is that you tried to attribute what proportion of those reductions in malaria has been due to the different control measures that you were talking about just before. Well, we found that all three intervention methods were, were effective at, at reducing malaria, but we found that insecticide-treated bed nets had by far the greatest impact. Um, and that's largely a consequence of, of use. They were the intervention method that was used the most widely and therefore it, it was most effective as, as a result. So reducing infection prevalence by, by 40% or, or even half, it sounds like absolutely fantastic progress. It is. Do you think that that rate of reduction is going to continue? Well, we're hopeful. We hope that the results of this study serve as a roadmap to say that A, it can be done, and B, here's where certain interventions are perhaps more effective than others, for example, or, or potentially helping inform policy for rollout strategies for interventions. But the, the big danger here, I think, is complacency. That quite frankly, when you have a big success like this on, on the scale of the continent, I think international attention and focus can be diverted to what's, what appear to be more pressing problems um, and should, should that happen and should funding flow away from malaria uh, kind of at this critical juncture, you could actually have a scenario where things were worse than even before <laughs> all of these interventions happen because now you've reduced resistance in communities and populations. So if malaria were reintroduced in some places, it could be worse than it was even before. So now I think is not the time to sort of rest on our laurels, but actually to press forward and continue investing heavily in, in malaria reduction. That was Daniel Weiss talking to Marion Turner. The results were published last week. Find the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. OK, time now for our weekly news chat, and Matt Crenson joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Matt. Hi there, Adam. So the UN are this week setting out development goals for the next 15 years. From what I understand, these goals are pretty lofty, right? Well, that's right. Uh, the first one is uh, eradicating poverty worldwide. Um, so they've got uh, some ambition there. The, the international community has already sort of been through this process once before uh, with something called the Millennium Development Goals. They were set out in 2000. Um, they were supposed to be reached by 2015. And um, they made progress toward all of them. Uh, they weren't necessarily reached but progress has been made across the board in uh, eradicating poverty and decreasing hunger and, and things like that. And for the Millennium Development Goals, how much of that progress can be ascribed to the actual goals themselves? That's, uh, that's the crux. That's a, the big question. Um, nobody really knows. And there are a lot of other factors at play. Uh, there's been a lot of economic development in China and in Southeast Asia over that period that accounts for at least some of the progress. So how much these goals have to do with actual progress in development is a, is a good question. So going forward with these development goals for the next 15 years, what's going to be the role of scientists in trying to ensure that these goals are reached? So there's a little wrinkle because the, some of the goals play off against one another. For example, bringing modern uh, power and energy supplies to uh, the developing world could aggravate uh, climate change and uh, cause environmental deterioration. So scientists need to help develop um, more specific targets that can be used to achieve the goals without contradicting with one another. So for example, 
decreasing the dependence on firewood as an energy source would be a great uh, tactic to use because if you replace the firewood with more sustainable energy sources, then pretty much anything would be more sustainable, but renewable energy sources would be best, you'd solve a lot of other problems um, from sort of obvious ones like air quality um, and deforestation to less obvious ones like uh, increasing children's ability to go to school because they're not out gathering firewood. And, and they're counting on, on scientists and researchers to identify some of these tactics that will provide co-benefits. Moving on to the second story of the week, there's been a trial of quite a novel treatment for learning disorders. Yeah, this is fascinating. So in the last few years, there's been a lot of interest in uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation or uh, electrical stimulation. Um, This is putting electrodes on the brain or magnets around the the head uh, outside the skull to uh, change the electrical signaling inside. And it's already been approved by the US FDA for uh, migraine and depression. Um, So this one is looking at learning disabilities in children. And um, there's always already been a little bit of research showing that adults with learning disabilities can improve their performance by getting specific parts of their brains uh, stimulated with electricity. Um, And so this is the first time that it's been tried in children. Now, when I initially read about these techniques, the first thing I thought of was things like electric shock therapy. But th- this is completely different to a technique like that. Uh, yeah, that, that's n- not what this is. This is sort of stimulation. Nobody really knows exactly how it works, but it's thought to change the pattern of firing by the neurons in the brain. Um, and the potential for children is actually really high because their brains are still developing. And if you can change those patterns during development, you might be able to uh, essentially help them grow out of some of these uh, learning disabilities. This seems like a big challenge to apply this technique to children, seeing as it's still quite a novel thing to be applying to adults. It is. Um, and in fact, there's a great quote in the story that we have in this week's magazine uh, from the, the head of the project saying, it's like when you build a house, if you, if you fix things you know, early in the the building process, it's going to work a lot better, but you also have a lot more potential to mess them up. And that's a big concern. Uh, So they're moving pretty slowly and conservatively. So the experiment looked at 12 uh, kids aged 8 to 10 who had uh, difficulties learning math. And the ones who had the electrical stimulation while they were doing it uh, did better on the, the training and on general mathematics. So they, they seem to see an effect, but certainly a lot more work needs to be done. Is there any risk with a technique like this that it will be applied uh, in cases where it's not necessarily warranted? Uh, there certainly is. In fact, you can buy these headsets uh, that deliver the electrical signals online, and you can imagine overeager parents uh, buying them and putting them on their children as they do their homework. Um, that's probably not a very good idea since we have no idea what it would do in the long term or without uh, some careful controls of uh, how it's applied. So I won't buy one for myself just yet? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay, thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. Sure thing. That's almost it from us. But before we go, we've got a little audio curio for you. Can you identify what's making this sound?
answers to at nature podcast on twitter or podcast at nature.com via email the first correct guess will get their name immortalized in a tweet oh i know it's your stomach that time you forgot your breakfast isn't it very funny i'm noah baker and i'm adam levy 